All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. This is the first interview episode of season five, the end game for liquid staking. Today, we're going to be joined by Hasu. Hasu is a special guest on Bell Curve at this point. It's a fun callback for those of you who watched the MEV season where Hasu was my co-host. Today, we're going to get him on the other side of the mic talking about one of his other favorite topics outside of MEV, which is liquid staking. Hasu's been acting as a strategic advisor for Lido for a period of time. And not only has great sort of high-level framings on the space for liquid staking, but in this conversation, we got to get into some of the nitty-gritty with him. So in the kickoff episode of this season, Miles and I introduced some of the big themes that we want to get a sense of this season, which is how is the market structure for liquid staking going to develop? What are Hasu's thoughts around the self-limiting debate, which is this idea that if a protocol like Lido gets a very dominant percentage of the market share, should it actually cap itself? We also talked about the impact of restaking and how that intersects in this sort of co-oppetitive, co-oppetition uh, relationship in between protocols like Lido and protocols like Eigenlayer. Now, not only did we get some great high-level frameworks for how we should think about this, and Hasu went deep into the uh, history of Lido and how it developed from a first principle standpoint, we also got into some of the more nitty gritty sort of tactical ways that these protocols actually develop and think about things. In particular, I want you guys to pay attention to the section where we discuss the role of decentralization and how it actually acts as an offensive tool for protocols like Lido. So this was a really, really great conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as Miles and I did. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. You got me and my co-host Miles here, and today we're joined by Hasu. It's a special guest, I think, of Bell Curve at this point. Got him back on the other side of the mic. Hasu, welcome back. Hey, Mike. It's, uh, it's, it's good to be back. It's been a while. So this is going to be a ton of fun, Hasu. <laughs> we're we're going to be... Uh, last season, we talked about MEV, which is a subject that I know is near and dear to your heart. And then I think we're going to be going down the road here on another subject that's near and dear to your heart, which is liquid staking. So we're recording this on July 6th. Uh, we're deep in the heart of a bear market. And it seems like liquid staking is one of the few areas in crypto which is really taking off. As of today, I'm looking at the TVL of Lido, which has just eclipsed 14 billion. That's more than Maker and Aave, the next two largest by TVL on Ethereum combined. So I think we could just start at a high level for this talk and just what is behind the rapid growth and adoption of liquid staking? And then maybe we can get into kind of a state of the union and how to carve out what are the major buckets of different types of providers? Sure. So um, I think the reason that liquid staking protocols have risen to the top of the TVL leaderboard, if you will, um, I think it's in the past, um, lending markets used to occupy that position because it's a place where people park their assets in order to get some additional rewards on their assets from lending them, for example. Um, but we are seeing in the bear market, not very much demand to borrow. And so not very much uh, interest that you can earn from putting your assets into lending markets, frankly. And so um, that's why I think overall the TVL of lending markets has been on the decline. We are seeing that in MakerDAO in particular. So DAI outstanding has gone down from 10 billion to 4 point something billion. 
um, the TVL inside Maker has declined even more. So now uh, a lot more of the die outstanding is backed by um, stable coins or other forms of stable collateral, such as uh, treasury bills um, that are held in off-chain trusts. And on the other hand, we have seen um, the rise of proof of stake. So obviously Ethereum went from proof of work to proof of stake, and that allowed users to now um, secure the network by staking the ETH. Um, and um, we are seeing an increasing demand to participate in that. So for one, um, users can earn uh, inflation rewards um, from Ethereum, but they can also earn MEV and transaction fees. And in spite of the bear market, the, these rewards have actually been quite consistent, um, much more so than what you can get from, from, from lending your coins. The other thing that I would point out is that um, withdrawals have now been enabled um, from the beacon chain. So proof of stake in general has been de-risked quite a lot. So my thesis has been for a while that we would see more and more ETH being staked as a result of that, because it's as close to, I don't want to say risk-free because it's not risk-free, but it's, it's as close as it gets basically to, to the kind of risk-free rate of crypto, which is just staking your ETH, which is kind of the most secure and most decentralized asset. Um, on the protocol layer in order to, to secure the network. And if you run your own node and you do a good job, or if you delegate that to um, a staking pool or a staking protocol, then yeah, you generally have, um, that's a pretty good uh, kind of, it's a low return kind of low risk uh, way of, of using that asset. One thing I'd be curious to get your perspective on Hasu is this sort of recursive leverage trade that people run using a liquid staking token like Steeth. So the idea being that, you know, you stake your ETH, you get Steeth in return, you turn around to a borrow lending protocol like Aave, you borrow more ETH and you kind of rinse and repeat and in that way sort of lever yourself up. I guess there's kind of a spectrum of healthy sort of capital efficiency and wanting to not, you know, take lose too much opportunity cost by staking maybe that's the really healthy way of doing it and then you've got this extremely recursive leverage trade that you can run being on the not so healthy way of doing it so i guess how much is part like how much of the market is driven by that more degen sort of activity and where do you sort of fall on the spectrum of you know not to you know put some sort of value on trading but is this a particularly good use of liquid staking versus maybe or, you know, it's excess speculation kind of. So the first thing that I would say is that um, this kind of looping is not no longer possible today because um, you can no longer borrow ETH on lending markets for cheaper than you can stake it for. Um, mm. And that's what you would expect in an efficient market. So there's kind of zero arbitrage um, anymore. Um, that used to be different in the past, in particular before it was possible to to uh, withdraw actually E from, from the beacon chain. And so someone who was uh, holding um, stake ETH um, or some other liquid staking token, they were incurring basically uh, like a risk on you know, the price of that moving against um, their ETH in, in some form. Um, and um, they could get liquidated on their position. Right. If they if they were using um, the liquid staking token as a collateral to borrow ETH and then the liquid staking token falls in value, then obviously you can be liquidated. Um, and uh, because people were like 
looping a lot of times, um, the leverage was very high. And so there was definitely a concern of um, kind of these cascading uh, liquidations there. Um, you were asking whether this is a useful feature of liquid staking tokens. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would definitely say so. Uh, we can go into how liquid staking is different from other forms of staking in a moment, but the ability for users to get liquidity on their tokens and to use that liquidity for whatever they want um, is definitely a feature of the system. And likewise, I think it's good for people who put their ETH into lending markets, because as a result of this, the, the, the rate of, uh, that they could earn on their ETH, um, was driven up to the staking rate, basically of what they could have earned from staking as well. And so you could say people who are not comfortable, maybe staking their ETH, but only putting in the lending market. So they were participating just the same from. Um, the staking yield um, in that way, which it basically further democratized access to staking through lending markets. Mm. So let's get into, I'd love to get your perspective on what is a state of the union of liquid staking providers look like? And maybe we could actually, we talked quite a bit about Lido in the first episode actually, but I realized that we never really gave quite an overview of the history of the protocol and how it functions today. And I know you act as a strategic advisor to the protocol. So maybe we could actually start with sort of Lido and get your sense of the overview of maybe wherever you want to start, either the history of the protocol or what you're sort of focused on today. And then maybe we can go and sort of carve out the existing state of the market structure and then try to poke at guesses at how it's going to develop. Um, yeah, sure. So small knit, I, I, I'm an advisor to the DAO, uh, to, mm. uh, which is the, the union of the, the token holders that basically vote on decisions um, for uh, what the protocol should, should do. Um, so Lido, uh, the protocol, uh, was conceived a, a few years ago, um, before, um, the beacon chain, um, was even live. Um, and back then, um, there was only one form of, of staking, I would say, um, really known from, uh, from, from other blockchains, uh, which is you delegate your, either you stake yourself or you delegate your coins to a professional node operator. Some blockchains had in protocol forms of delegation, uh, that kind of made it cheaper, more accessible, and also more secure because the node operator didn't have custody of the coins. Um, but Ethereum, uh, chose a different route. Um, in particular, um, they were going with this kind of isolated blockchain that would run in parallel, which was called the beacon chain, right? And that kind of ran its own. Uh, you could call it an incentivized test net for, for multiple years, um, before it eventually the, the, uh, you know, the proof of work kind of consensus was then stripped out for this, uh, beacon chain consensus layer. And that's still how it works. And I, I would still say this is one of the most impressive, um, technical feats in, in kind of the history of technology to way that the engine of this plane was kind of swapped in mid flight. Uh, I still like this analogy very much because it's so fitting. I mean, Ethereum didn't miss any blocks as a result of this, and it's still an absolute technical marvel, you know, the way that, that this worked. So when it was clear that Ethereum would move to proof of stake, then of course there, um, it, it was obvious that users would uh, want to stake and they would want to participate in securing the protocol. 
And um, however, you, you, you had several problems in Ethereum. One was um, in order to run a validator, you needed 32 ETH. There was the minimum at the time. It had already been lowered from, I don't know what the number was before, maybe in a tune of to several hundred ETH. That was when Ethereum was cheaper still, you know, uh, much cheaper than it is today. And they lowered it to 32 ETH. But um, even at the time, you know, when the beacon chain came out, that that was maybe, you know, $60,000 or something. Um, so it was a very substantial amount that not many people had. Um, so needing to stake in increments of 32 ETH was one big problem. Um, the second big problem was that people had to lock up their stake uh, on the beacon chain. And the beacon chain was expected to run for at least two to three years, maybe longer, um, before uh, withdrawals would eventually be enabled. And um, as we saw, that um, estimate turned out to be pretty accurate. So I think it took around three years. Um, between launch of the beacon chain and withdrawals going live. So I'm not 100% sure. Um, but it was also clear that people would want liquidity on their stake. So either, either two outcomes, either people could not get liquidity and then the, the number of people would be, who would be willing to stake would be much smaller. Basically, only people who don't would be comfortable locking up their ETH uh, for many years with an uncertain outcome, uh, if they will ever get it back or um, people can receive, uh, we sometimes call it a voucher, you know, for that represents uh, this ETH that they stake uh, on the beacon chain, and then they can find another seller, uh, sorry, they can find another buyer for that and then they can sell it. Yeah, and we, we now call it a, a liquid staking uh, token. And um, the third thing, uh, the third problem was that, that Ethereum did not have this native ability that we talked about to delegate. Um, to to a node operator, um, so you could find uh, Ethereum did have one feature. It had separate um, a separate validator key and withdrawal key. So the party who could withdraw the tokens could be different from the party who was using the the, the coins uh, with their validator on the beacon chain. But it wasn't trustless. Um, basically, you needed to find someone, um, you know, sign a legal contract. Uh, needed to do kind of your own sourcing and so on. And there wasn't any way to, yeah, to just like select someone from a list of node operators or say, I want to withdraw my tokens now. And so you, you had these multiple problems and I think it became pretty clear that there would be a new form, like that a protocol that would solve all of these problems would be quite dominant over anything that, that existed at the time. Right. Um, so. When I look now where the kind of differenti differentiation lines, let's call them like the, call them that, uh, are drawn, then you still have this, what we know, now call liquid staking versus non-liquid staking. So liquid staking is just when you, um, when you receive a voucher that represents um, this EVE that is being staked uh, by a node operator. And you can take it and you can use it somewhere. You can trade out of it. You can use it in Aave and Maker and so on. Um, and the non-liquid non ones are just if you give, for example, your money to an exchange um, and they stake it for you and they put rewards in your wallet every month. Um, this is another very common form. I think Coinbase has uh, like a double-digit uh, market share using, using that model in, in staking right now because it's very easy 
Um, so that's the other big category. Then I think uh, custodial versus non-custodial is, is a pretty big one. I think there's a pretty big overlap, I would say, between like liquid and non-custodial and non-liquid and custodial because they fit very well. Um, and then finally, there's retail versus institutional. So it's more about um, which customer segments um, are you speaking to, right? So um, I think that uh, Lido, um, the protocol, initially, I think its value proposition, it spoke particularly to, um, to, to, to kind of Ethereum native users, right? Who wanted to self-custody because it was a non-custodial protocol who wanted to use their coins uh, in, uh, in, in DeFi because it was liquid, right? Um, and who, who weren't institutions, right? Because institutions weren't in DeFi at the time. So I think that's, that's where Lido got its start. Um, uh, but we have over time also seen other protocols um, come around that focus more on, for example, ease of use. So I, I like the whole custodial liquid staking, like its big benefit is that you just don't have to self custody, right? So if I'm a user, most users in crypto never leave their centralized exchange account, right? They never withdraw a coin to Ethereum uh, still. And so there's a huge number of users who you only reach if you have a custodial offering and you make it like one click from their existing exchange wallet. So. Uh, it was very natural, I think, for Coinbase, for Kraken, for Binance, and these other platforms to roll out their own staking uh, offerings in a custodial way. And uh, I think I still remember that there was actually, a, I had a huge concern personally that these exchanges would capture most of the stake by the time that withdrawals would even go live. Why? Because it's um, like a custodial staking is so much simpler than non-custodial staking for users. Um, but um, the main reason was kind of the liquidity because if you're on an exchange, then you can very easily make staking liquid in the sense that you, you know, you allow users to trade out of these staked validators. And I really expected exchanges to go very heavy on liquid staking um, because they could make it, yeah, you know, they, they could allow people to trade out of it. They could allow, you know, it to be used as collateral. And um, it didn't really happen that way, which kind of made me very, very surprised. So Binance had a staking derivative, Coinbase for the longest time didn't, Kraken didn't. I would still have to talk to an exchange executive uh, and understand why they didn't do it. Uh, what was the exact concern? But it would have been... I mean, I expected them to do it and I think it would have been the right play. And had they done it, then I don't know where we would be today, frankly, because um, it would have been such a compelling offering. I think that, um, yeah, it basically becomes a very big risk um, that eventually kind of 60, 70, 80% of Ethereum validators are run by like two to three large exchanges. So I think into that concern, then Lido was born to pre pre present basically a counterweight, like a, a non-custodial uh, staking protocol that, that has some of the same benefits 
which is it's very easy to use and it's liquid um, so that people don't have to stake with exchanges. I think that makes sense. And I think you kind of pointing out three different user personas here. Um, you know, the first being, you know, maybe an institutional user or somebody on an exchange that either wants the convenience of one click from an exchange or they want, you know, the compliance requirements of, of uh, you know, an institution. Then you have basically everybody in the middle that uses Lido. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you might have, you know, self-stakers that, that mint, you know, uh, rocket pull ETH, right? Um, and how do you view the growth of those, you know, I guess the first bucket and the third bucket um, relative to Lido's core users right now? And then how do you think about extending support for those types of users, you know, from your seat in Lido? That's a very good question. I mean, I think where is, do, do you know where exactly they are in terms of uh, market share right now, in, in terms of broad size, kind of the more institutional yeah, focused segment um, and the... Rock so, you know, CBETH, which is mm -hmm. interesting because it is retail only, um, mm -hmm. you know, has, has grown, I think, to roughly about 10% market share of, mm -hmm. of liquid staking. Um, I believe Rocket Bull is kind of around the same same range. Um, and CBETH, you know, it's notable that they've done this in the face of, you know, 2.5x the fee rate, right, that Lido mm -hmm. charges. Um, so. <laughs> Definitely tells you something about the users there and their and their preferences. Yeah. Um, and I'm just, yeah, I'm curious to, to know how you guys are thinking about, you know, positioning Lido also to capture some of that market. Maybe this is, you know, users that were previously, you know, sticking with Kraken, right, traditionally, um, and now have withdrawn. Or maybe they're users that were just waiting for withdrawals, right, to come off the sidelines. Um, and I'm curious to just hear how you think about the growth, growth prospects of of either side of the market. Yeah, so I think, and I, if I'm totally honest, I don't strongly understand who uses CBEF because <laughs> as you were saying, it's so much more expensive, but you still have to self-custody it if you want right. to use it, right? I, so I don't know, like, do all, are all the assets on chain? Like, I don't actually every... think you have to self-custody it. I think ah, you, can, okay. you can mint it and then hold it in your Coinbase account. Oh, okay. So pe people just hold it as a stand-in for like regular Coinbase staking. So it was basically, okay. So it, it's almost like they cannibalized the existing products in a way and just called it CBE. Mm -hmm. Okay. That would make sense. Oh, um, because if, if all of the CBE was held on chain, then I would actually argue that Lido is already kind of a superset of that functionality. Cool. But if, um, if you have to custody it, then I would have to say, uh, I think the, the way to to access this market would be by offering alternative custodial products. Um, a, uh, by ex existing exchanges, uh, listing stake ETH. So people can, you know, buy stake ETH and hold it on an exchange or a wallet. I think that would be one. And the second would be through more traditional, uh, you know, asset management channels. Right? So, if I can hold staked ETH in my Fidelity account and my Vanguard account and so on, then um, that is probably a, a, a competitive channel kind of to um, these existing exchanges that speaks to a very similar, uh, maybe even a little less sophisticated group of, of users. Um, but that is, again, bigger than the previous. So, yeah, um, that's what I would say about that. Um, in terms of um, Rocket Pool, uh, I think um, that 
solo stakers, so individuals who run their own nodes and let's say who, who kind of run fewer than, I don't know, a hundred validators, I, I think that they are really important backbone of uh, Ethereum decentralization. Um, and Rocket Pool, uh, to their credit, has been around uh, much longer uh, than Lido as well. So they were, they launched um, later than Lido. Lido was the, the first protocol to market by, I think, a decent margin. Um, but the, you know, Rocket Pool as an idea and kind of the team behind it had been at work uh, for a long time. And I think the reason that they were launching uh, later was because they were set on a very specific model where um, users can basically like solo node operators can divide their stake and, you know, they can put 50% of their own stake and they can borrow 50% of a, of a user stake. And then um, they can stake that together and they secure that in, a, in addition with uh, uh, an R, a rocket pool token bond um, or kind of a collateral, I think is, is, is a better term, right? Um, and uh, this has uh, the benefit that it's actually trustless, uh, like it's, it's at least more trustless. So there, there are some caveats that we don't have to go into, but, yeah. um, it, it is, it is definitely more trustless than other protocols that, um, exist today. And so it's very important for Ethereum that these solo it's, it's, it's almost like leveraging kind of this backbone in order to, you know, m give them more stake in a sense. Right. Um, and, um, this makes definitely Ethereum more, uh, decentralized. Right. Um, and this is, you know, the same values that, that, that Lido has as well. I think the two protocols had different, uh, yeah, different priorities, if you will. Right. Because Lido, um, focused on this, or the Lido DAO focused on what they saw as a huge and possibly existential risk for Ethereum, which is, um, you know, a small number of exchanges capturing a majority of the Ethereum stake by the time the proof of stake would go live. And I think it, that was a very real and very big risk. And it is still a big risk today. Um, even though I, many people don't want to talk about it. Uh, I was looking actually last year and we will get into this. I think it was last year when there was the self-limiting debate yeah. about Lido and there was a lot of Lido had a one month where there was very bad, like a series of very bad kind of consecutive press, um, where there was uh, the three arrows, um, kind of force selling their, you know, stack of stake Eve and then Celsius. And, um, there was Terra Luna and at the same time, there were, uh, kind of people on social media arguing Lido is getting too big and they should think about self-limiting. Right. And at that time, Lido had almost no new inflow of stake, uh, also because the stake Eve was trading at a discount. Uh, it, it was a bit cheaper than Eve, right? And so somebody, somebody wanted to stake, they were just buying from the market instead of staking. And you could see that over 90% of people who were staking, people were still staking, but over 90% of it was going to Coinbase and Binance, you know, into the custodial <laughs> pockets, you know, and, um, it was a kind of, 
<laughs> and these were entities are not transparent at all, you know, about um, how much share they have in staking and uh, what is their infrastructure like, uh, where is it located? And, uh, you know, they don't care about client diversity or, um, you know, decentralization and so on. So I thought that was interesting. Anyway, I think the reason why I talked about why, why we got sidetracked to this. So Lido and Rocketpool, I think are ideologically very, very similar protocols that are starting from slightly different points. And I think that they are moving towards the same point, which is in the case of Lido, um, there was recently uh, a version two of Lido that included um, the idea of a staking router, which is a, a, mod, a more modular architecture for um, adding basically different uh, uh, staking modules that, that represent kind of different um, lists of node operators or kind of or, or different configurations of, of node operators. And what this allows is for Lido to um, not just distribute um, the stake to uh, a permissioned list of node operators, but for anyone to write new modules um, and send them to the DAO to consider. And then the DAO approves, same way that MakerDAO or Aave, for example, approves a new form of collateral, then Lido DAO can approve a new staking module. And that can and will include things like uh, permissionless staking um, that has a collateral attached to it, for example, uh, or staking um, that is, you know, uses distributed validator technology, where, for example, professional node operators and individual node operators are working side by side, you know, and have this kind of consensus protocol overlay and, and are working together to mm. make blocks on the beacon chain. Um, and so I think I would expect in the next year, uh, Lido to move from currently, I think, 35 node operators to hundreds, if not thousands of node operators as a result of this infrastructure. Wow. And what at the same time you're seeing rocket pool has long kind of hit the scaling limit of their approach, which is if you need all of the, uh, node operators to over collateralize, uh, any customer Eve that they take both with their own Eve, but also with an additional, and I think it used to be something, and I don't want to say something wrong in the range of like 10%, um, additional collateral in the form of the RPL token, um, then it is very expensive, you know, and it doesn't mm -hmm. scale. Uh, and so I think they hit the scaling limit and what they are doing now is they are trying to reduce this collateral and they are also whitelisting entities that is allowed to stake without a collateral. <laughs> and so, um, such as Coinbase, um, by the way, which is interesting. And so I think, uh, that over the next year or two, I think you can expect these protocols to move more towards, you know, look more and more alike in that sense. Yeah. So. I think a, a rocket pool, uh, it will have more permission node operators who are professional and to have a rep off chain reputation at stake and so on. Uh, and, uh, that's, a, that al will allow them to meet more of the user demand and Lido at the same time, it will have more ways also to support permissionless staking, 
and that is the group you were talking about right uh, yeah um, the the solo operator who's really passionate you know about uh, running their own uh their own hardware and who you know just wants to get uh, you know a form of leverage basically on that um or the user who wants to stake but they want to stake specifically with uh you know a solo operator and not with a professional node operator i because i want to dig deeply into this with you hasu but before we do i just want to bookend the, the conversation about market structure and maybe add one tiny bit of context there and then ask you a specific question before we get into this which is you know, to your, to your, I thought you made a really great point about at, at the height, it was May of last year, uh, actually, when this debate started started taking off and Vasily made his post in the forum and actually Vitalik, right? So it's not just, you know, random people on Twitter. This was Vitalik himself proposing some sort of limit to Lido's growth. And the reason why, you know, the, the, uh, the sort of paradox that you pointed out was very interesting that at the same time this debate was kicking off, it was actually Coinbase and Binance that were getting inflows. And originally, part of the reason why uh, Lido was so supported was because I think like you, many were concerned that these centralized custodial based offerings would take up an enormous amount of the stake and Ethereum would lose some of its sovereignty, so to speak. But I think the reason why people are a little bit concerned about Lido today, and we can get into whether or not that's valid, is because of this perceived dynamic of a, a winner take all market for liquid staking, uh, or staking in general. And I think I want to kind of just ask you the question directly about how you see this market structure evolving. Do you agree that it's a winner take all or winner take most market structure? And maybe if you could get into some of the dynamics that make this liquid staking in particular, you know, what are some of the returns to scale? We talked a little bit about this offline, but if you could explicitly outline what those are and then say whether or not you agree with that, and then we can kind of get into this self-limiting debate. Yeah. So I would say I'm definitely in the camp who thinks that liquid staking and by extension staking in general is has a very large uh, network effect uh, and uh, return to scale and so it's very likely in my opinion that the outcome will be very centralized or i th i think centralized is the wrong word but it will be more it will be concentrated um why is that the case so first of all i think liquid staking is a much, much superior solution to regular staking um, because it's basically a superset of that, right? So uh, you can have, uh, you know, liquid staking is like regular staking, but you also have liquidity, which is purely beneficial. And then it is, in addition to that, also non-custodial. And um, that allows it to be held in different ways, right? So a non-custodial asset you can hold in custody, but a custodial asset you cannot hold in self-custody, right? So in many ways, it's 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 purely better in, in every dimension, right? Because you can turn a non-custodial asset into custodial one if you want. Um, and for that reason, I think that the market share of liquid staking over regular staking will approach 100% over you know, a long enough period of time. And so we only have to think about liquid staking. So liquid staking in general, I mean, what is so special about liquid staking? It is that you get um, this voucher that represents the ETH that is being staked and you can use it, you get liquidity. And as we know, um, liquidity begets liquidity um, and people want to use or they get the most value out of using the staking token that has 
already the most exact, um, acceptance that uh, they can use in the most places, um, such as lending markets, exchanges, that has the deepest liquidity and that has the highest brand recognition and so on, right? Uh, it is really like to the degree that a token is used as money, it behaves like money. It has the same network effects as money, right? And so if, if, if we are talking about uh, kind of a liquid staking protocol for a token that's not used as money, then these effects will be much lower, right? Because then if people hold it anyway and they don't use the liquidity effect, then it doesn't matter. But for a token like ETH that people use very actively and many people treat it as a form of internet money, then the network effect is, as a result, uh, very big. So that would be the first point. And one thing maybe to add, back last year, people were actually saying, look at stable coins as an example for why this network effect is not actually that big. And look what happened one year later. <laughs> um, all of this, like Tether is exploding in size and all of the other stable coins are collapsing. Um, I think this is a good example. I think yeah. why people shouldn't judge prematurely kind of what the like outcome will be, um, of a particular market. Um, it, because at the end of the day, network effect almost always wins, you know, it, it, there can be a path dependency and it can take a few years, but, um, I think that when it comes to money, the network effect is just super strong and, yeah. you know, at the, in the end it will, you know, succeed. Um, so that's one network effect. I think brand, I mean, we touched on this slightly. I think brand is just extremely important. I think as a user, most people are inclined to stake with what is already the largest provider and yeah. the oldest provider, by the way. And so if you, if you're both, then that's, that's a pretty, pretty big <laughs> position, yeah. pretty good position to be in. Um, because staking is something that requires a lot of trust. Um, you are basically putting your money into a box and you are leaving it there for years, if not decades. Um, and, uh, this, yeah, this, this requires, um, you know, a, a basically a lot of, a lot of trust in the operator. And that's exactly what a brand gives you, right? A, a brand is basically, um, like it reduces uncertainty about the future. And so, um, that's, that's so important. And then there's this idea that, um, running or like getting a, um, when there's already some established kind of staking protocols, liquid staking protocols that have built this, these integrations and this liquidity. So there's almost like a minimum that you need to get to a minimum size that you need to get to, to be even anywhere near you know, in the conversation. And so, um, in the beginning, you, I think you can think about these in terms of fixed costs. So if you wanted to break into liquid staking today, you, you have to spend multiple billion of billions of dollars, like probably in that range. Right. And so I think, um, it is, it is just very hard to, to spend that amount of money as a, as a smaller protocol. And so the bigger you are, the, 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 the less kind of the effect of the you know, fixed costs um, is hurting um, the revenue. And there's one, th one final thing that I would say, actually, this is a, a thought that's kind of more new in my mind. I haven't really um, verbalized it before, but 
all of the criticism, not all of the criticism, but many of the criticism against Lido is completely correct. Like the concern that, um, you know, they can go, things can go wrong if most of the Eve would be in one protocol and that protocol is not part of the Ethereum core protocol. And it has some governance layer, for example. And Lido is taking, you know, aggressive steps to decentralize the protocol and the governance. Um, and one of them is, is this idea of dual governance where, so Danny Ryan, and we will get to this. He, he has basically voiced the concern. Yes, Lido is, is not one entity. It consists of many entities, but under extreme, under extreme, you know, conditions, the incentives could play out in a way that these many entities behave as one entity, and then they do something that's bad for the users of Ethereum. So that is his, his um, concern, right? And what Lido can do or is doing about that is introducing the idea of dual governance, which basically says for anything that Lido wants to change, that Lido DAO wants to change about Lido the protocol by voting on it, the staked e folders can actually just veto the change. And so you right. get this filter where bad changes can no longer pass through because they would not be in the interest of the stake e-folders, right? And I think the more, the bigger the protocol, uh, the more stake e-folders basically have to be convinced that a particular change is good for the protocol so that it can pass, right? And mm -hmm. so you actually get this herd immunity from being in a bigger protocol where there's more people watching the governance and more people have to vote, uh, ha have to kind of be in favor of any changes for these changes to come into effect. And so for me, this is definitely an argument for, for why I would use um, a protocol where you know, there's more checks and balances and yeah, kind of the, 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 the bigger, uh, the more people use it, um, the more people can spot anything um, you know, that goes wrong. It's a, it's a really good point. And I, I agree with you on, on all of that stuff. And the reason why I just wanted to, to interject that is I think many people agree with that point of view that it's a winner take all protocol. So people get a little bit worried about the amount of influence that a protocol like Lido has, because the general thinking is this protocol seems pretty unstoppable at this point. And just to get more specific, you know, to go back, if we rewind the clock to, to May of last year, you know, I kind of mentioned that it, it wasn't just the some random pushback on Twitter. It was, you know, it was originally kicked off by Superfiz, who openly wondered about the first staking provider to public commit themselves to not limiting their their uh, more than basically keeping their stake to lower than twenty twenty two percent of validators on chain. Vitalik retweeted that and said said speculative take. We should legitimize price gouging by top stake pool providers. Like if a stake pool controls greater than 15%, it should be accepted and even expected for the pool to keep increasing its fee rate until it goes back down below 50%. Uh, 15%. That all led to an actual uh, governance proposal in Lido that was initiated by Vasily, one of the co-founders, basically voicing the idea, should we, should we effectively self-limit? And eventually it was voted that they shouldn't do that. But I would love to get your perspective on the self-limiting debate anyway. It's kind of an interesting philosophical question, which is maybe a cousin of the should billionaires exist question, which is getting bandied around <laughs> outside of our corners. But is it a good thing to be 
from frankly, just a capitalist encouraging entrepreneurs standpoint is a good thing to, to limit the growth of some of these protocols. And then maybe we can get into some of the specific ways that Lido is choosing to limit itself. What you were just alluding to the staking router and dual governance. Really good question. And I think last year it was a very pivotal time um, for the staking market in general and, and, and for Lido as well. So I think, all, first of all, I have to say that many of the concerns um, that people like um, Superfizz and um, Danny and Vitalik um, have had and may still hold today um, about uh, one staking protocol growing, um, you know, to a particular size that these are definitely warranted. And so, um, at, at, for example, uh, you know, Lido, uh, Lido the protocol, the smart contracts are still upgradable um, by governance, for example. And so governance could vote, uh, for example, um, to, you know, change something about the smart contracts, um, to the point that it would, um, be detrimental for stakers or for node operators, um, or for Ethereum itself. And so that is, that is definitely a concern. Um, there could also be bugs in, uh, one of these smart contracts that could have a negative effect. For example, if could be frozen. So I don't know how it would happen. I'm not, you know, super technical, but. Uh, I think that in general, when someone says, well, if there's a huge amount of TVL in one protocol and it's like doing one of the core functions of Ethereum, which is moving the beacon chain forward, um, then, you know, this could have a spillover effect on the security of the whole system. I think they are completely right. So that's the one perspective. The other perspective is what do you think is the structural outcome of competition in the liquid staking market. And I am also, I mean, I am starting from the position that, you know, size is dangerous and has responsibility in order to manage all the risks that come with it. But I'm also coming from the perspective that exchanges are, were, and still are in the best position to, um, capture a lot of stake and become very influential players in the staking market. Um, and that the uh, dynamics of liquid staking drive towards a winner take most outcome. And when you combine these things, then you kind of get into the mindset that you can't really, you know, choose for there to be 10 staking protocols that all have 10%. I mean, you can dream about it, but it's not going to happen. And if you, and you, like, you have to be pragmatic. And what being pragmatic means is you try to make the best liquid staking protocol win. And you make that most, you know, as decentralized and as aligned with the underlying base protocol as it can possibly be. And so I would say that is the summary of my position. Um, I started from the point that I thought, you know, this is the liquid staking industry. This is very clearly going to have one big winner and there's nothing that can be done about this. You can tweet as much as you want. You won't change that outcome. 
I didn't even know all of the players involved. And I just thought, well, what is, what can we do from here? Like, how can we salvage the situation? And I saw Lido being, I saw Lido as a protocol that was in a good position to fight the exchanges. And that I also saw as like culturally very aligned with Ethereum, having much of the same values and goals and having a very clear commitment to transparency and to decentralization and to constant self-improvement. And I thought, yeah, this is something that I want to support with my time and, you know, with my, uh, yeah, with my money as well. Um, and, uh, th that was the position that I was in. Um, and when the self-limiting debate came up, which, I mean, I thought, yeah, this is definitely going to be kind of a problem at some point. So it wasn't exactly a surprise. Um, then Lido has uh, a grants committee that's called Lego. And so it, it has a budget and, um, people can give grants and, um, the way that Lido protocol works is, um, it, there's the DAO, you know, and the DAO basically decides the direction and the strategy of the protocol. Right. And so, um, it turns out that, you know, whether Lido should self-limit or not is a pretty big part of what the strategy should be. And so it was very clear that this decision cannot be made without asking the DAO for their opinion. And so Vasily did, um, what I think is exactly the right thing. So as a member of Lego, he looked for someone who can write, um, what we call a Swiss booklet, um, because in Switzerland, they have these ideas of the referendum, right. And, uh, people can vote. Uh, it's kind of a form of direct uh, democracy, right. And uh, people can vote and they publish these small booklets that, that basically say, if you believe in, like, if you believe in these things, then you should be in favor. And if you believe in like these things, then you should be in favor of the other option. And they are written by an independent committee, usually of experts on the topic. Um, and they are basically a form of voter education and you know, lowering the cost for them to come to a decision that would be good for, for everyone. Right. And so I, um, and, um, there was someone, um, in, in the cosmos system, we had in the past written such booklets for governance decisions in cosmos. And, um, I believe Vasily thought that this would be a great thing to also try in Lido. And then you know, he reached out and he, uh, he asked, um, um, you know, Sasha is, is, is the name, um, of, of the author of that post. Um, and, uh, he, uh, yeah, he, he agreed and he didn't hold any LDO at the time. I don't, I don't know if he does now. Um, uh, but yeah, he wrote this unbiased, uh, analysis. Um, and it had, I thought actually it was, a fan, it was, it almost reminded me of Vitalik's writing style. Um, because Vitalik is like incredibly good at representing both views of an argument. Right? Uh, for example, when he wrote this post, um, about, you know, the Bitcoin maximalist argument, um, that he published on April 1st. And all of the maximalists were saying, you know, <laughs> this is an endorsement of Bitcoin maximalism. Um, so it almost reminded me of, of that in a sense, because it really had, you know, a full list of arguments for why you should be in favor of self-limiting and why you should be against self-limiting. 
And I could read this and say, yeah, this is like why we shouldn't self-limit. And somebody who was in favor can read this and say, yeah, this is exactly why we should self-limit because exactly like it isolates the assumptions that different people have and the different lenses through which they view reality that then lead them to, you know, come to voting A or B at the end of the day, right? And so I thought that this was actually a pivotal moment for Lido governance because it illustrates how the DAO should work. Right. When there's a major decision, then, um, you know, to, you should ask token holders, uh, for what to do, and you should try to make the decision for them as easy as possible. And, um, yeah, so Lido token holders did end up voting, uh, against self-limiting, um, because I, I think at the end of the day, I mean, of course there's a self-interest, but also I think they were swayed more by the arguments against because I, I think people working on Lido uh, or investing in Lido, I think they are kind of, you know, in a sense, agreeing with the idea that the staking market uh, has these tendencies of being winner take most and um, that it is very important for a decentralized protocol to win and so on. And um, yeah, so that's why we saw, I think, the outcome that we did. Um, and that is the, yeah, that is the, the, the track that the DAO um, has been on since then. Yeah, I, I think that's a great overview. And, um, you know, it strikes me that I think a lot of folks on either side of the argument are actually very aligned at different stages. Um, but a lot of this comes down to sequencing, right? And there were, I think everybody was more or less aligned that Lido needed training wheels in the early days in order to create a an offering that was competitive to the centralized exchanges, right? And I think everybody can somewhat agree, or most people can agree that if a winner, if there is a winner take all, um, you know, winner take all winner liquid staking protocol, then it should be uh, more or less as hard to change as Ethereum itself. Um, and, you know, the ability to stake with it should be as, per, you know, permissionless as, as staking with, you know, with native staking, right? Um, and I think the, the disagreement here really came down to like where Lido should be at its stage of growth. Um, and it, you know, it almost had, you know, in the eyes of some folks in the Ethereum community had already mitigated this risk of, of centralized exchange capture, but yet hadn't gone so far enough to take off the training wheels, right? And I'm curious to just hear if you agree with that sort of overview and, and also curious to hear where you think Lido is today, you know, it, with things like, you know, dual governance coming in, the staking router coming in and, and early conversations about, you know, ossifying parts of the protocol so that governance cannot upgrade them. Yeah, I think this is a, Miles, this is a really good, I, I think, observation. Um, be, I can't speak for everybody who's on the side of, you know, Lido should self-limit, but I think a fair amount of people would say that if Lido had, you know, descent, like was much even more decentralized than it is today, then they would feel comfortable with the you know, higher market share, for example. Right. And so they can point to particular things and say, you know, that's why I'm in favor of self-limiting today, but I may not be in the future. I was, I was missing like a bit of nuance on that topic, I think also, like it was very, it felt very tribal, which is mm -hmm. never good. Um, because then it's, it's, it felt more like I'm supporting like rival protocol X and that's why I'm actually like making a stink against Lido, but, but anyway, um, so 
you're totally right. Like Lido in the past year had even more training wheels on than it does today. So in particular, um, not, I believe at the time, so I don't know when it happened, but I believe at the time, at least like, uh, part of the validators were still, uh, controlled by the original multi-sig, uh, committee. And that was simply for, you know, because it wasn't like back when Lido started, it wasn't possible for a smart contract to control a validator on the beacon chain. And so you had to control it with an EOA. And the way that you did this was with a multi-sig. That was the only way to do it. And when it became possible, Lido switched to, you know, smart contract custody that was controlled and the, the smart contract was controlled by Aragon governance. Um, so when it was possible, then Lido switched, uh, they rotated, you know, all the, the, the EOA controlled keys and then the multisec has been retired since then. So they have made, uh, you know, further steps, um, towards decentralization. Um, however, there are the the degree to which um like we, we think we call it like ossification right like to, the degree to which this is possible is not just limited by the amount of you know like how much lido DAO wants to work on this or um uh, like how much resources it can allocate but it's also uh, severely constrained by the underlying base layer um and so uh, for example, while the Ethereum, for example, you know, withdrawals wasn't finalized uh, from the beacon chain, it was actually impossible uh, for Lido to make any ossifying steps on in the protocol side. Um, so I think these are definitely like these these timing concerns. I think what I'm driving it is this is very very nuanced. Like um, you you need to unlock certain uh, ossification on the layer below. So you can unlock ossification on the layer above, which is the staking layer. And at the same time, what you cannot control is the demand for staking that that comes in, which is actually like unbound from this. And um, when you say that, for example, a decentralized protocol, and I use like decentralized now here as it's not it, it's not where it wants to be, but it's way more decentralized than, you know, let's say Coinbase and Binance. And, and you say, well, it, it can't grow above, let's say 20% because it doesn't have feature X, Y, Z. And then you look at, you know, the top two exchanges and they don't have any of the same constraint. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, and so, yes, I think that decentralization is incredibly important. Um, a lot of the roadmap that the Lido DAO has laid out uh, for the future of the protocol is centered around decentralization. Um, and it has been now for a long time. And that is because decentralization for many systems, it can be seen as a form of sacrifice, right? Like in Uniswap, for example, you know, uh, you, you sacrifice a lot by having to run your system on Ethereum in a smart contract, you know, it's very inefficient kind of curve design and like the, the cost of liquidity is very high. And if you, if you could do, you know, a central limit order book, then you, you could support professional market makers and it would be way better, right? So something around these lines. Yeah. But in, in staking protocols, this does not apply. You know, the thing that it does 
is very simple. And the more decentralized you can make it, the better it gets. Because it's so much about neutrality and trust. Um, and, and this is why for, for Lido, decentralization is not a sacrifice of anything. It's extremely good. And it's a, for that, it's a, it's a number one priority in, in the sense that like, it's not a defensive move. Like, like decentralization for Lido is offense, if you will. Um, so that's why it is the number one priority. And, um, so I, I'm planning to post, um, some, uh, suggestions over, um, the next month. So that, that lays out some of my thinking and my role as strategic advisor, uh, for, um, uh, what the DAO should, uh, should do. And that includes, uh, two things in particular, uh, one is. Uh, you know, taking steps to decentralize the governance, very specific steps. So I personally see uh, dual governance, shipping that, I, I, I see that as the number one priority uh, because that already de-risks so much about what can go wrong in governance. Um, and um, the second thing is uh, getting the staking router going. So basically increasing the node operator set. Because when you have a permissionless staking module and you have a DVT module and you can get the node operator set from 35 to 350, I think that also alleviates, I think, a lot of concerns. And it's, it's, it's not just that these two things will make an impact on their own. It's very similar to, you know, how in Ethereum, if you go back a few years, there was a general attitude, you know, they will never ship proof of stake. They will never ship scaling and so on, right? It's just like a project that just, you know, makes eternal promises and doesn't deliver anything. And with Lido, it's not at all like that, but I think there's always an element of the more of your roadmap you have already shipped, the higher the confidence um, and the momentum that like the rest of the roadmap will be delivered as well. And I think this trust is just very important. And so, yeah, I think for that reason, I think that's where Lido stands right now in terms of um, the uh, decentralization roadmap. And um, I think those are the things that, you know, um, the DAO should do next. Yeah, that's, that's a great overview. And I think, so, yeah, with the staking router and DVT, you're mm -hmm. moving towards permissionless validator sets, right? Um, with dual governance, you're basically have an interim solution to mitigate governance attack risks before these contracts can actually be made, you know, immutable or ossified. Um, I am curious to get your opinion on in a hypothetical end state where, mm -hmm. you know, this is the ideal end state where the happy path for Lido, um, where it is winner take all market structure and you have executed on this decentralization roadmap, you know, what, which functions will be left, you know, will yeah. be impossible for the doubt, you know, not to ossify completely. Um, and I think about whether it's, you know, how to distribute deposits across these different validator sets. I think about fees, um, as well as, you know, it's going to be a tough decision, you know, to ossify a contract like withdrawals, where if you, you know, maybe ossify too soon, you could have a catastrophic situation. Um, 
and so I'm curious to hear in that end state, you know, what will be left for the DAO to really control and and in particular will will they get will there be pressure to ossify fees? Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think the question like what is going to be left is a little similar in spirit to a question that I sometimes also hear, like in order for like what should Ethereum do about liquid staking? And should they make like an in-protocol liquid staking solution? And like, if you squint, the two questions are actually the same because we're also asking, well, how can Lido be ossified so much that it basically becomes a part of the Ethereum protocol? And you realize that there is actually like, let's say Ethereum would put liquid staking into the protocol today, you know, and there's two problems still remaining. One is the stake is not fungible. So every validator would create its own uh, liquid staking token. And, you know, you don't have any of the liquidity aggregation effect that actually makes liquid staking so effective. And the second thing is if you want to have the liquidity aggregation, then somebody needs to pick who, uh, what node operators are receiving uh, the stake. And um, if you want to be very simple about this, then you can say, well, just let the stakers decide. And, um, you know, then there's a list and, you know, people sort it by the name that they trust or the amount of uh, revenue that they can generate, you know, um, doing that. I think then basically what happens is the, you know, the competition between node operators, it becomes concentrated in one at most two dimensions. And that is actually extremely centralizing for the underlying node operator set. Um, because basically the stake goes to the, you know, the parties that have the best brand. Uh, it goes to the parties that take the most risk or it goes to the parties that have the lowest cost of capital. And or, and or kind of where the stake is secured in like the, the safest jurisdiction, right? And, um, Proof of work is a good example. What happens if you let the kind of free market, quote unquote, for validation play out? Um, it used to be mining used to be entirely in China because that's where the the, the hardware makers were and the energy was the cheapest. And now it's almost entirely in the US because all of the mining companies are now public because that's what gives you the lowest cost of capital. You know, so um, you would get basically a very similar outcome um, in staking if you just follow the incentives. And that is why actually I think one of the huge values that Lido has or the DAO has for Ethereum today is exerting some amount of governance over what a good node operator set should look like. So for example, Lido has quotas for geographical decentralization for what amount of stake is allowed to be in any, on any particular continent, in any particular jurisdiction, how much is allowed to be controlled by one legal entity, how much is allowed to be run with a particular combination of different clients in order to drive client diversity. Um, how much is allowed to be run in 
in a cloud-hosted setup versus an on-premise setup and different things like that. And so due to this governance over the node operator set, um, Ethereum today has actually a much, in many ways, better node operator set than it would have otherwise. And so I think what this answer kind of hints to is that some amount of governance over the node operator set will always be necessary because you need to match the demand for delegating stake with the demand for staking, uh, you know, actually like running these validators. And you need to do this in a way that that satisfies the under the objectives of the underlying network, which is e Ethereum. And so at the very minimum, I think the DAO has to vote and it can do this very infrequently, but it has to vote on the objective functions of the node operator set. And I think beyond that, you can, you know, ossify almost everything, but I think this particular part um, will probably always require some amount of fine tuning. Uh, it, it can be infrequent and it should have the full buy-in of the stakers. Um, and so I, I think this is a realistic place for Lido to get to. I want to under just draw a line under the point that you made before about decentralization, not anting antithetically to the product, but actually being offense. It's a core part of the value proposition of the product. And I would sort of draw a comparison in between Lido and a couple, Ethereum is very picky about what it takes into the actual protocol, right? It doesn't like to have an opinion about a lot of stuff and it outsources actually very critical functionality of the protocol. Lido could be an example of that. Flashbots could actually be an example of that, right? Ethereum outsources its block building. And I think actually Eigenlayer or restaking protocols have the potential to be that as well. And I think it just bears repeating that that I hadn't really made that connection until you just, until you just said what you said, but those are very interesting. Those are very interesting group of protocols that do very core functionality for Ethereum. And the example might be miles is what we talked about in our first episode, but it could be something like utilities. It could be something like the banking system or health things that are very close to the metal or the social contract or infrastructure of <laughs> life. And, and, uh, what I want to make sure that we've at least got time to touch on a little bit is this idea of restaking. And I know you have a little bit mixed feelings on restaking. We're going to be talking to, to Sri Ram later in the season as well and sort of hear from the horse's mouth. But one, one of the ideas that I wanted to, because I've heard you talk about the principal agent problem, and that definitely plays when it comes to liquid staking in general. And I think you might add on an additional layer or potential risk of principal agent problem when it comes to restaking. So can you just give us the high level of how you think about the interaction or intersection in between restaking and, and liquid staking that we can poke out in a bit? So restaking is the idea that Ethereum's validator set is an important asset or like a valuable asset in itself. And by, and you can leverage the set to perform other activities by having these validators opt into additional slashing conditions. Or rather, they opt into performing additional activities and they can then be held accountable by opting also into additional slashing conditions. And so a few use cases for that have been put forward. Um, 
I think they go from, you can run kind of protocol, like data valid, like Ethereum validators also providing data availability, um, for example, also sequencing layer two, uh, rollups, um, uh, they could provide oracles, you know, bring prices on chain. Um, I think these are just three examples, um, of, of what you could do with this. Um, I think it definitely has its place in terms of narrative. It feels just a little overheated right now. And I think you can basically see this in when Eigenlayer launched, you know, the contracts filled up with stake right away, but there's no one on the other side who actually wants to use these services, um, and would pay for it. And I think we're quite a bit away from actually uh seeing any revenue generating activities uh from this um and yeah i think um when it does of course it will become important um but i think yeah we will have to see and on the other side of that we talked about the competition between staking protocols so definitely all staking protocols compete on providing rewards to the user and you don't have to be the best one. Like, I think you can always boost your rewards by taking more risk, which is not desirable. So it's about, you know, having a good ratio of risk and reward, but to the degree that liquid, that, um, that restaking will drive rewards to node operators, then the stakers will want to participate in these rewards and the protocol that uses restaking, um, it will improve its differentiation in the staking market very clearly. So I can tell you restaking is something that all of the staking protocols uh, are definitely have on their radar, right? Um, today, there are two ways of doing it. I think one is Eigenlayer can, you know, they can take uh, what is already kind of a staking protocol a staking token and, you know, stake that, um, and, uh, as, and then kind of use that or the staking pool, uh, itself, they can run, uh, they can implement Eigenlayer or, or another restaking protocol. Right. And so I think this is another strategic questions that, you know, the DAOs behind these or the, the operating companies behind these, uh, liquid staking protocols have to have to think about, um, in terms of timeline. If I have to, my personal timeline is, it's probably between like one and two years away of becoming like a serious differentiator in the staking market. So that's why I'm personally more focused on executing the decentralization roadmap. Uh, I think that's more important today, um, than, uh, anything that, that can boost, uh, the rewards for stakers. So. In terms, you just laid out a really interesting relationship in between. There's sort of a co-opetition relationship between something like Lido and something like Eigenlayer, right? And I think a big question of that is who is ultimately upstream of whom and who has the relationship with the user? Is that roughly how you view it as well? Or maybe talk a little bit about, about that dynamic and if they have the potential to be more friendly and complementary or if it ends up being a struggle to who has the user relationship. I think... That's a good way of thinking about it. Um, they, they, I mean, today they are clearly very complementary, 
right? Yes. Because yeah. um, liquid staking protocols want higher rewards and um, what uh, a protocol like Eigenlayer wants is access to node operators and yeah. users. And this mm -hmm. is what the liquid staking protocols have. So it's a, it's a perfect match in many ways, assuming that there's demand to use the liquid staking protocol. And that's, I think, that, that that's where it hinges today. Yeah. So right. I think they've been incredibly successful at, you know, bootstrapping the meme that there will be a lot <laughs> of demand, but whether there will also be real demand to fill that expectation, I think that's to be seen. Um, to the degree that they can, I think the relationship can be very complementary. Mm. Um, I think it is possible um, that a restacking protocol will eventually also look into uh, how can we integrate vertically and like right. run our start running our own staking protocol or a staking protocol might eventually say, well, why don't we internalize some of the restaking? But I'm not so constructive on these moves personally. Uh, and that's for a few reasons. I think one is that protocols in general, and this actually goes to what you said about fees, Miles. And I realize now that I didn't answer your question directly. Um, protocols, I think the thing about protocol, decentralized protocols is they can get much bigger than anyone thinks they do. And if you think you know how big they can get, they can get 10 times bigger. That's my perspective. And they will probably have very small margins. Yeah. So, um, and when you have a situation like that, you, you, you have a, a protocol that has very slim margins. There's very little to gain from internalizing that and vertically integrating. You're better off just collaborating. Um, especially if it's in a market where kind of customization and user, like you don't need to control the whole user experience. And I, I think like crypto is, a, is actually a pretty good example of that. You can have a pretty good user experience just from composing with other smart contracts. Um, and the second thing is it is related to the particular strategy that Lido DAO has or operates. And, and that is to become a neutral middleware, i.e. kind of a very, very thin protocol. Like actually like the, the, the things that Lido DAO should do should be minimized as much as possible. And so the, the protocol must have an incredibly small, what I would call management surface, you know? Mm. Um, so, because that surface is what then the, the DAO ultimately has to manage. Right. And that's why I, as a, an advisor of Lido, I'm very, very against any form of vertical integration. And when somebody says, shouldn't we do X, Y, I'm like, no, forget about it. <laughs> like, don't do vertical integration. It is not right for Lido. Like mm. Lido should be as thin as possible and as neutral as possible. You don't want to manage anything. You don't want any complexity. And that's how you need to play in the staking market if you want to survive. And it's not even about winning because if you don't win, then you don't survive. Like that is the nature of the staking market, because I don't think there's an equilibrium where you can have 20% market share or 30% market share, right? Yeah. This is why I'm like, so against self-limiting because if Lido doesn't keep growing, then it first stagnate 
and then it will die. And I think this is true for all liquid staking protocols. And so that's why I'm very pro collaboration um, and trustless interfaces between these protocols. And I'm very anti vertical integration. And that's why I'm also very pro. And now we finally get to the fee question. So I would be very, I don't, I don't think that one concern that people have um, about uh, protocols that get very big or companies that get very big that have that again, outsized bargaining power over their users, over their suppliers. And then what happens is they start increasing the prices. Like Apple taking 30% fee from the App Store, which you can argue today, it's clearly okay for them to do it because, you know, people can still not leave <laughs> and get right. the same value elsewhere for cheaper. But I think one promise from decentralized protocols is that they cannot behave in this way, that the um, value that they can extract, that they can capture is actually limited at a much smaller size. So I think definitely fees should be kept. I'm not even sure that they should be subject to management at all. I think Lido could have an internal fee market the same way that Ethereum has an internal fee market today. Ethereum is not opinionated about how much gas should cost on a given day, right? It only defines um, what is the supply of it, for example, right? Um, that is allowed. And I think Lido will uh, get to a similar point where the fee that the users pay and that the node operators receive is simply set by supply and demand. Right. And as long as the node operators adhere to the objective function that is very, very infrequently set by the DAO for what the node operator set should look like, then the price discovery between these two parties can be left to the free market, basically. And um, the DAO should have no ability to jack up the prices, you know, and say, uh, this is how much users should pay and this is how much node operators should receive. I don't think it should have that ability at all. Yeah. I think that um, the fee that they, that they can get, that they can take, um, it should be small and it should be fixed yep. because this is what gets both users and node operators and all of the protocols and integrations and so on that are building on top. It gives them uh, all of the confidence that they need to treat this as really kind of long-term reliable and immutable infrastructure. Yeah. And I think that makes sense. And I think there's an, you know, an obvious concern about, you know, the demand side fees and, you know, Lido's ability to, to rack those up to, you know, Apple store like um, rates once it has a monopoly. But I do think experimentation on the supply side, you know, fee split between the protocol and it, and its validators could, could actually be interesting to explore in making the protocol healthier. You know, I, my gut sense is that the largest validators of the Lido set right now, you know, the, the chorus ones of the world, uh, the P2Ps would actually take a smaller commission than 5% in order to receive larger deposits. But, you know, as you're trying to bootstrap, say these permissionless, you know, validator sets via the staking router, they're going to need more than 5% potentially, or maybe 
you know, whatever that revenue that you, you know, higher rake for the largest validators could be used to, you know, bootstrap their collateral, right? Um, and so I am thinking, of, you know, from your strategy seat, how do you, how do you view like, you know, the, cause that, that's an example of maybe not being super thin, right? You can be very active, but towards a, a you know, a healthier outcome. That's why I think a staking module should have the ability to set their own fees, basically. Okay. Right. And then yeah. there can be competition between different modules. Right. So, um, you're totally right. I think, um, especially like if you imagine from here that the price of Ethereum increases by 10 X, it's not impossible. Right? right. And then what is the margin of the average node operator is like 97% maybe. Uh, so the cost for them of actually running the hardware and the infrastructure is very small compared to the fee that they are then getting. And it's very clear that this is not, you know, the market equilibrium, nor is it optimal uh, for users or for Lightroom. And so um, I think in that case, it's very good for the protocol to have a price discovery on what is actually the cost of providing the service of running validators. And it can also work in the other direction, right? So if 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 Lido goes, you know, if Eve were to go again to like a hundred dollars, then Lido must also be secure, right? And it can't all of a sudden be that node operators are not incentivized anymore to perform their services because there is a fixed cost to running, you know, to to, to running these node operators. And maybe if Eve is ten percent then, you know, the equilibrium for node operators on the beacon chain is actually like 2% of the network. Like, I don't know, it's possible. In either case, it should be possible that node operators also can increase their fees um, if their cost goes up um, or their revenue goes down. And um, another example of this would be like a bonded node operator who is permissionless and who, who puts up some of their own collateral but doesn't have an, a reputation, at least at first. They should say... Um, well, some, I mean, I, I will participate in Lido, but someone needs to pay me for this cost of capital that I'm incurring because otherwise I couldn't be competitive. This would not be profitable for me. And so they should, you know, ask for a higher fee. Um, and so I think it's very important for that reason that, and I think it's part of the vision also for the staking router that different modules can set their own fees and then there's competition between modules and there's price discovery on um, yeah what the best supply side fee uh, should be. Hasu, unfortunately, yeah, we could keep talking for, it's the mark of a good conversation that we had about five topics we didn't even get to here. And we could keep going on for forever here, but you've already been really generous with your time and just really appreciate you having back on Bellcurf here. So Hasu, this has been a ton of fun. You've given us a lot to think about and really teed up a lot of the questions that we wanted to ask for for this entire season yeah hopefully not the last time i'm really looking forward to what's the rest of the season i think uh you have a definitely a knack for topic selection um first you know app chains and then mev and then liquid staking i think um, you're definitely at the frontier where it's most interesting thanks sir i appreciate that all right well miles and i'll try to do the subject justice and uh yeah thanks again for your time all right miles what an episode there so many great thoughts from Hasu. It's almost tough to digest and figure out where to start. I know. I know. I think we, you know, did a, covered a lot of what we covered on the first uh, intro pod, but just a click deeper and, yeah. you know, really interesting to hear the perspective of somebody, you know, sitting in his seat as the strategic advisor, the Lido Dow. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I think one of my one of my takeaways, the the question of market structure was, in my opinion, answered about as directly as you're ever going to get it done. I think Hasu explained a lot of the ways and he was thinking about some of the the network effects and returns to scale of a liquid stake and token issuer, similarly to to how we were. So I, I really I thought the discussion started to get really interesting when we started to talk about, you know, he thought about it exactly the same way that we did, which was he drew out these these two sort of principles, frankly, of DAOs and decentralization that we talked about a couple of seasons ago. But it's kind of these these two ideas, which is one, you know, Lido sits in this very interesting camp of DAOs where it's very close to the base metal infrastructure of Ethereum. It's basically Ethereum deciding to outsource a core function of the Ethereum protocol itself. And so decentralization is, I love the way he phrased it as being offense instead of defense. And then the other thing that is on the roadmap for Lido and sort of indicative of how they think about it is limiting the surface area of what the DAO does. I thought that was fascinating. So, and there are a couple of ways to go about this. Part of it is ossifying uh, core parts of the core parts of the protocol, but then it's sort of a mentality of limiting limiting itself to whether that be operating on Ethereum or you know not vertically integrating or whatever it is. It's just a very interesting perspective. I don't know what, what takeaways you had from that. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, you know, we kind of wound back the clock to, you know, before Lido existed um, and just thinking from first principles, you know, his conclusion was that there will be a winner take all of this market. Um, and so the best thing we can be doing right now is making sure that whatever the winner is, is, you know, as decentralized as, as possible and the best version and the healthiest version of the network as possible. Um, and, you know, I think the sequencing of, of the decentralized, decentralizing the protocol is very important, right? Because those training wheels were, were, were necessary to, to compete with the centralized exchanges. But, you know, to your point now, decentralization is now a growth unlock for them, right? Whereas with more typical protocol DAOs uh, that, you know, are building more applications, user-facing applications, rather than something that could be considered infrastructure of the of Ethereum itself, right? Um, you know, that same sort of decentralization actually is a growth hindrance at times. Um, and so now, you know, it's at the stage of, okay, we've gotten the early lead. Now it's time to execute on the, you know, decentralization road, roadmap as a growth unlock, right? What's going to get Lido from 30% market share to 70% market share? Well, it's going to be getting the entire, all the stakeholders of the network comfortable with their winner take all, you know, uh, market position. And to do that, you need to basically start making the protocol as hard to change as Ethereum itself. Um, but being very strategic in in, dis, in your decisions um, and, and maybe even interim solutions like this, you know, dual governance dynamic. Yeah, we we didn't get too deep into dual governance and Steve. Our next episode, we're going to be diving into the nitty gritty of how that all works. I did think one core idea to call out was, you know, if I've always thought one of the most elegant parts of Ethereum's design is how it's tackled fee fee markets. I thought I think the way that it works in Ethereum is a, a really elegant solution. You're starting to see Solana where there was a fixed fee potentially move in the dire- more in the direction of fee markets. I had never really thought of the staking module for Lido introducing the possibility of a local liquid staking sort of fee market. I thought that was such an interesting takeaway and it hadn't even that hadn't even occurred to me. So I thought that was a very cool point. Yeah, I think um it's interesting to hear that you know the last part of the protocol that probably will always be 
need some sort of DAO, um, you know, involvement is the curation of these, of these validator sets and also, you know, how deposits are distributed across them. Um, I thought his point around, okay, well, what if you just let the stakers decide? Wouldn't that be the best possible way for the network? Well, problem with that is that it actually would end up with a, a less decentralized set because stakers natural incentive is to go with, you know, the validators that they know well, they're not going to lose their, their, their stake. Right. Um, and so again, this curation is something that, you know, Lido has been criticized for, but turning it on its head going forward, once there is permissionless sets, you know, that curation is going to be necessary in order to actually bootstrap, you know, deposits for those steps, new, new permissionless sets. Yeah. It was a super interesting point. It kind of got me thinking miles. I, I didn't want to ask, I never like asking about questions like what, you know, what's the, uh, the potential return, you know, for something like this, but I'm increasingly starting to start see this connection in between to use, let me use a really high level non-specific metaphor, but then try to get a little bit more concrete with it is these sort of levels of different corporations in America and the function they do and how critical it is to sort of human fabric and the social contract. So Initially, you know, utilities was the example that we used, but I think you could largely actually lump defense, you could lump banking services, you could lump healthcare, these things that you can't really just leave totally to the free market. There has to be some degree of regulation and then the impact that that has on returns of those various industries and highly regulated industries, they tend to be more predictable. There's less upside because you couldn't, for instance, for the example that you used, you couldn't implement fee, you know, surge pricing for heat, for instance, that would be an extremely unpopular thing to do. But it's because it's regulated, it's it's much more dependable and predictable. And Hasu, the way he described this primitive of Lido as a liquid staking provider, it almost takes it one step further. And you're isolating by limiting the surface area and making so much of this just ossified smart contracts, you are limiting the surface area you're increasing the TAM, but you are decreasing probably the rake that you take there as well. So all in all, I think what this ends up looking like is kind of an annuity, something like an annuity, right? A very large uh, total addressable market, winner take most with non-punitive fees. So what you're left with is sort of this stream of income. And then I guess it just depends on how much that stream of income is bid up or down. But there's, you could sort of look back at historical periods of time, even in the US, at various times, annuities have been in, they've been out. But that's, that is large, that's kind of the framework that I'm starting to look at a lot of these protocols as. I'm curious what you think. For me, it's still a we'll see. Um, because, I, you know, as I was kind of alluding to, I think that, you know, if you were to take a super active, you know, role in trying to drive revenue to these protocols, you could actually do so in a way that you could increase the rake without, you know, necessarily increasing the rake in the, to, from the perspective of the user, right? So you could right now, basically Lido fees are set at 10% for the user. And that 10% is split between, you know, equally between the DAO and its validators. Um, and I think there's some very interesting, you know, kind of auction dynamics or market dynamics you could introduce to how that 10% is split up among validators in the DAO 
Um, and I think that, you know, the protocol could actually increase its rake if it wanted to um, by taking a higher cut and giving the largest validators a lower cut. Um, and that, you know, is more of a kind of a capitalist sort of approach here, right? Um, it is. But but just to, not to interrupt, but I mean, how much can you really do that? You know, it's 5% or something right now. You could move that, what? Uh, you could move that a couple hundred basis points. When, you know, there's there's no opportunity to go from a 30% to a 50% sort of gross margin. But the point I was just trying to make is that there's there's the opportunity, you know, to exert some some influence leverage on your supply side and maybe you can increase your rake a couple hundred basis points but there's no opportunity to the the sort of flip side of not vertically integrating not trying to reinvest those gains and trying to be a very small surface area sort of flat credibly neutral protocol is you don't have any opportunity to go from a 30 to 50 percent gross margin kind of thing or invest in all these new and exciting business lines i think that's the 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 flip side of that sort of point i was trying to illustrate i think that's fair um I do think that the it, it, the returns could look a lot better than an annuity if we end up with these, you know, this small margins, but in a winner take all, you know, end end market structure. I mean, that's going to be very, very valuable, right? Um, yeah. But I, I, I in general agree. I think it's definitely a very different, you know, approach than a typical business, um, given you know what dynamics are required to kind of, you know get that winner take all market share. And actually to that point, I think Hasu is absolutely right in just saying that everyone tends to understate the market size here. If I'm not 100% sold on the idea of Ethereum as money, but it, it might just be uh, one of those things where reasoning by analogy is inherently imperfect. People use Ethereum for money like things today. They probably will in the future. I increasingly think a, a helpful metaphor to understand the relationship between Ethereum and Steeth, for instance, is you know, dollars and stake dollars, which is bonds. And if you look at the the global market size for US dollars versus US treasuries, it actually is about one to one. And the, the market for treasuries is larger than the market for dollars because there's more there's more demand for yield bearing money compared to non yield bearing money. So it's it's a very fair point. We could we are probably drastically underestimating how big this market's ultimately going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, despite uh, treasuries not being necessarily fungible, um, you know, there's plenty of liquidity for those markets and ETFs. Um, you know, maybe the only counterpoint there that I could make is that, you know, Steeth, right, is completely fungible, um, whereas a lot of U.S. treasuries are not. And so maybe it's more, it's, you know, a stronger network effect there. And, and it's, you know, maybe less than one-to-one -one and more swings in the way of the, the yield-bearing asset. But I think you could be right as well. You never know. It's it's tough to really gauge this stuff out. And then last thing, we we sort of ended the talk talking about restaking. Hasu was not super bullish on that. I think his primary uh, point there was just that was just that there's not an, an enormous amount of demand for on the demand side of a two sided marketplace like Eigenlayer. There's actually an enormous amount of people that want to restake their their stake ETH, but there's not an enormous amount of node operators that want to run hardware for X Y Z random chain. And for that reason, he wasn't super bullish on it. I, I did think it was interesting to call out the sort of co-opetition co dynamic in between Lido and Eigenlayer. And I do think it goes back to our original app chain thesis point of who has the relationship with the customer and who's upstream of who, because, you know, it's kind of a natural, there's a natural push to vertically integrate there between those two providers. 
Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. I think there's kind of two parts of the supply side for restaking. It's the stakers who's, you know, especially liquid stakers who are not running hardware. Then there's, you know, the validators that they've delegated their stake to. And I think the stakers would love this idea of additional yield. The validators are saying, well, actually, you know, that marginal yield comes at a significant additional cost for me, whereas for the stakers, it's no additional cost, right? Um, but what will be interesting to see is just how much, you know, demand there is from these rollups, sequencer sets, oracles, bridges, um, you know, and, and at what point, like, this is secure enough to, to get some of the larger players here and not just the ones that are looking for, you know, a narrative to kind of latch on to, right? It was, it was interesting. I think we'll, we'll have to, one, the one thing, it's almost a philosophical answer and I'm glad some of our, some of our responses were more tactically oriented and sort of history of liquid staking. But I, I think it's a question worth posing of, is it a good thing to limit like Ethereum? And I, I you know, I would, I would, at this point be more in the camp of, I think there are more creative solutions to implement than some sort of cap. I don't think it's a great message to send to entrepreneurs. There's, there's actually a sort of a rich history of monopolies. Frankly, we could do a whole podcast on the histories of monopolies and antitrust and things like that. But starting with Rockefeller, probably even before there's this rich history of entrepreneurs coming into an early stage, very wily up and down sort of market and actually helping to tame it with the form of monopoly. And then there, there are sort of natural uh, undermining effects that, that lead to more diversification later on. The John Rockefeller and what he did with Standard Oil is actually a really good example of that, where it was a boom bust industry that was impossible to make any returns in. He came in, standardized everything, and then the monopoly it, you know, sort of gave birth to one of the largest industries in the world. And there, there may be some, you know, something that we could learn in crypto from doing that. So I think so. All right, Miles, this next episode is going to be really good. We, we've mentioned this a couple of times now, but we're actually going to be talking to Izzy from the Lido team who's in charge of their node operations. So he's the perfect guy to be talking to about nitty gritty questions around the staking module, dual governance, and how they think about decentralizing themselves. I think you all can tell today that that's an enormous part, not just of kind of a technicality of trying to align and, and seem decentralized. It's actually a core part of the value proposition for these liquid staking protocols and it's how they go on offense. So I think that'll be a great conversation. Yeah, really looking forward to it. And uh, it was a blast chatting today.